I'm Nareet Ben, and this is Life Deconstructed. Intimate, open conversations with successful women on how they got to where they are, the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way, and what success even means. Just about nine years ago, Stephanie Mark began turning a passion project into a major force. With two good friends, she co-founded Coveture as a way to peek into the lives of the fashion set and global tastemakers, influencers way before influencers were a thing. Since then, Coveture has become a wide-ranging brand, beauty, fashion, health, travel, wellness, the list goes on. They've won awards for everything from writing to video to beauty coverage, published a photography book, and come out with a podcast, Checking In With. I'm lucky to get the chance to turn the tables and have Stephanie answering the questions this time around. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. So tell me just first off the obvious. I mean, how have you found a bit of normalcy? How are you doing right now with COVID? Because you're just not like an average person in COVID, but you're also helping run a major company, also in a field that's been kind of upended by all this. Yeah, I think you know, when the pandemic first hit, there was no time to even know how you think or feel. We had to, you know, shift our entire strategy. So 2020 for us was a big focus on experiential. So we were really, you know, tempoling our year with offline experiences. So we were supposed to open a Covator dedicated suite at the St. Regis in New York. We were going to have our second Women in Cannabis weekend festival. We were going to do it in L.A., And we were also meant to do a holiday pop-up shop. So the immediate, after making sure all of our staff were safe and home and had everything that they felt that they needed, it was really, how are we going to pivot the business? And that took a lot of work and it was so reactive. And it has been that way probably up until the last, I would say, six weeks. Once September started, it sort of felt like, okay, this is a pattern this is a new normal. And I will say it has been more isolating than I thought it would be. Coming back to New York initially, you know, it felt less isolating just because the city itself, I was home in Toronto and before that Cape Cod, but now I was, you know, back on my old stomping grounds and going to, you know, pick up coffee at my favorite place. So the days felt more full, but now being in New York and not going to the office and not being able to be with anyone from the team face to face is definitely more lonely than I had anticipated. Yeah, I think that's something for sure that we're all going through that it's both on a personal social level, obviously, and finding and navigating a way to create a certain atmosphere, whether it's just brainstorming or just basic work culture that is such a big part of what makes people happy and what makes people have motivation and, and learning to do that through a computer, which, yeah, okay, it's it's a solution, but nobody can say it's the same thing. Yeah, no, it's it's hard. I was just actually talking to my mom this morning and she was saying so much of what you know, Covetour does being in media and also lifestyle is we sit around and we brainstorm and we think of cool, amazing projects and things that we want to do. And doing that over the computer is close. It's not the same. I feel like you can get the same ideas, but you miss that like little buzz of energy, that little, you know, frequency of people being in the same room, getting excited about the same thing. So, you know, for now, you could see people outside and try and make it work. I think once it gets a little bit too cold to do that in New York, I fear for everyone's sanity. At least you're in Israel, where I don't think it would ever get cold enough to go outside, to not go outside. 
Yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I've lately been complaining about the fact that there is one season that never, ever, ever changes. And you kind of, right now, I feel like I need that turnover, you know, because everything else is the same, because there's the lockdown yeah. and everything's closed and everything. But you're right that come December that I might feel differently about that. Um, yes. <laughs> so I'll, I'll probably want to hear a little bit more about the the challenges you guys have faced and, and what you've been doing about them later on. But I want to go way back to pre-Covateur times. Were you one of those people, I mean, at whatever age comes to mind, that had an idea of what they wanted to do early on? Did you have a kind of, this is what I want to be when I grow up ever? So I always knew that I wanted to be in the fashion industry. That was, you know, set from the beginning for me since I was really young. My grandparents are from Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada, and they actually owned a like higher end women's clothing store. And when I was really young, I would, we would go and I would sit behind the desk and I would watch all the customers on the little video that was behind the cash desk. And I would always play with the adding machine in the back. I was always dressing up when I was little. I told my mom, like my life's dream was to be locked in gap kids overnight. Like I was, it was set. I think that what I didn't realize is there were so many aspects of fashion. So it's like, what about fashion did I really want to do? And it definitely wasn't designing because drawing is not my strong point, but (laughs) I ended up coming to Parsons in New York. And I was so sure that I was going to be in PR. I was like, I'm here. I'm going to be in fashion PR. It's going to be amazing. And I got my first internship by literally knocking on the door somewhere. I had gone with a friend who was interning at W and school hadn't started yet. And I went with her to pick up clothing from a PR company. And there was another one next door. And I just knocked on the door and said, are you looking for interns? And it's funny because shortly after I had done that internship and then another one in PR, but pretty pretty early on, I was like, oh, this is actually not the thing that I think I want to do anymore. Yeah. That's the beauty of internships. I also, when I, when I was at NYU, I did a whole bunch of internships in different things because I, you know, I was less focused than you were in that sense. I had kind of no idea. And I tried different things and I know they can be either wonderful or awful. What was your kind of experience? It was honestly all over the map. You know, I had some that were amazing. I interned at Elle when Kate Lanfear was there. I interned with her and that was amazing. I learned so much. I loved it. She just took me under her wing and was so kind and nurturing. And, you know, she was an amazing mentor at that time that I absolutely loved it. And I had other ones where I was on the subway taking cans of paint to my boss's house because her friends were coming over to paint her apartment that weekend. And there you go. No money for no money for a cab. I carried a ladder straight out of a movie internship. So what I will say though is the experience in all of them added up. You actually interned with a bunch of big names, I think. I mean, you mentioned Elle, but a host of others. How did you get your foot in the door? I mean, in one case, you literally knocked on the door, saw the door, knocked on it. Yes. Which is good advice to start out with. How did you end up, you know, getting in those rooms? Honestly, I will say, and this is something that I think to me or to other people might seem obvious, but when you are applying for an internship, you have to be incredibly personal and persistent. So, you know, what I would tell people is if you want to intern at a magazine, don't email the magazine, like go, you don't even have to buy the magazine, go to like Barnes and Noble, 
look in the masshead, see what department you want to be in, and then find the like email address format of that company and email the person who works there. This was also, you know, before social media, and I think probably before so many people were getting DMs and whatnot, but I was just... Yeah, it was a little more complicated back then than, than like... But also, I was more persistent. It wasn't like someone had 100 DMs to go through a day of people wanting to work for them. And also, a lot of the time... If I saw someone out somewhere, I would just ask them. That's how I ended up at L. I had a standing row ticket for a fashion show. It was like I was in the back of the back of the back. I think through Parsons, maybe we ended up there. And I saw Kate Lanfear in line and was like, hey. And then I emailed her. And then I followed up. And I bombed my interview so bad. And then their intern that they hired quit. So they had to hire me. But um, just things like that. Just real you know, persistence. Yeah. And, and confidence to just walk up to the person and say, Hey, this is who I am. I want to work for you. Yeah. And I think a good attitude, honestly, not, not to be stopped by, you know, voices in your head or. Yeah. I mean, the worst they could say is no, but also I would do this thing where at the end of the interview, I'd be like, great. I'm so looking forward to. So I was like, if I talk to you, like I already have the job, then maybe you'll just agree and give it to me. That's a great mind trick yeah. because that actually works on yeah. people. Like they just get used to the notion. Not like, well, if I might get the job, I would really love, but it can't wait to start. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like your coffee on Monday? Basically, yes. How do you like it? And that's honestly half the battle when I, you know, meet people or talk to people who say, you know, I want to start my own business or I'm doing X, Y, and Z. How can I do more? What I say is the fact that you're out doing things, even if it's a side project, even if it's an internship, you're ahead of a lot of people most people can't act on those things or are afraid to act on those things. So the fact that, you know, you're just out there in the world, I think is a big step. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your first official out there in the world. I think it was after graduating Parsons, your first job was back in Canada. Am I right? At a retailer? What was that like? So I graduated from school and I needed a job. So I was actually a like junior agent at a modeling agency in New York for a hot second. Oh, wow. And then I got recruited for a job back in Toronto um, with Hudson's Bay Company. And the modeling agency wasn't wasn't the vibe, wasn't the world you wanted to be in? Well, it's so funny because I was planning on staying in New York and I a recruiter had reached out to me from Toronto, which was bizarre in itself because I was truly just fresh out of school and had no experience. And I called my parents and I said, isn't it so funny? Like how random this thing happened. And like, why would I move back to Toronto? I live here in New York and it's great. You know, caveat, I was making no money and probably living beyond my means. And my parents were like, oh my God, great, perfect. You have to move home. We're not helping you with this New York thing anymore. Like you went, it was, it's been four years. Like you have to come home and get a job in, in a more reasonable city where you could pay your own rent. So it, that backfired. It's like, I should not have told you that. <laughs> but everything happens for a reason. Obviously, you yeah. know, moving back to Toronto ultimately led to starting Covetour, but I did move back for that job. And I mean, it was like out of a movie. I was I went from being in New York, the, the office was an hour outside of Toronto in the suburbs. I was staring at a parking lot. Less glamorous than you had oh my God. on when less, you rolled at Parsons. Less glamorous. But, you know, I was excited the person heading up the team was really great. 
she also wore a pro lens atop the first day I met her. I was like, this is amazing. You love fashion. I love fashion. She left shortly after. So I just felt like I wasn't actually getting experience out of it. And that is really, you know, what I was looking for. Like you weren't really learning what you wanted to be learning. I wasn't learning anything. Yeah. So I did, I didn't, I, all the other things weren't great, but I felt like I wasn't gaining anything. And that for me was the frustrating part. So I had done styling in New York and worked for stylists. So I actually got a agent there and started just doing styling jobs on the side and ended up reconnecting with an old friend who had a clothing line. I was a stylist for her lookbook. There was a photographer who was friends with her brother. That ended up being, you know, the three of us who started Couture. The next day after that shoot, her and I were like, oh, that's fun. Let's do a passion project. And that was really it. So the three of you start this passion project. Is that all you saw it as at the time? I mean, did you have any inkling in your wildest dreams that it would grow into, never mind what it is today, but just even something like an actual full-time job? No, no, honestly. And it wasn't for a while. You know, we, at the beginning, it wasn't making money. So everyone was still doing their own other job. But I think also a de- it's going to be a decade in January that the site was live, but it has already been, you know, we started before and starting something on the internet, like it just is, was not as common. And so explaining it to people, explaining it to our families was just so foreign that I think everyone was like, sure, I guess. But I don't think like until it went live, my parents were like, oh, we get it. I think kind of. Yeah. But it was just, yeah, something we were plugging away on. But as soon as you went live, it went big. I mean, you, you started with what, like six closet profiles, closet profiles. Yes. We launched with six. And the site actually crashed the first day it launched. And this was, you know, real organic internet SEO 101. But that's um, what I'm wondering. I mean, I got that. I have to stop you there because that I was like, okay, so how did you do anything to publicize that you were going live, that you were put it out? How does that happen? So it was a really organic, I will say. We had a lot of content banked. So before we went live, we were shooting in New York. And just by word of mouth, people would say like, oh, you should shoot my friend or here, you should do a profile on this person. So people knew that the site was coming and either someone they worked with was being featured or a friend of theirs or they were being featured. So there was that element to it. And also we had a write-up on style.com that day. So the site went live and people had been waiting. And also the companies that all these people worked for also wrote about it. So it was just like a big push of information on one day where unlike now, I think those types of, you know, launches happen every day, but it was just a lot of people talking about one thing when that wasn't as common as it is today. And people really responded. It's almost like a real OG influencer marketing where we were like, Hey, influential people, we're gonna, you know, cover you in X, Y, and Z way. But we were like shocked. I truly thought no one except my parents would go to the site. We were, I mean, even still now I'm like, I can't really believe that that happened. So it was just so you used kind of both all, all of your experience, your collective experience and connections to find the people to shoot. And then it just, ha- you know, the word of mouth created that buzz that laid the groundwork. Yeah. When there was nothing we should say, I mean, this was not at all the fashion, beauty, blogger, travel world of 2020. 
No, but I think also it was an interesting time. I think people were just getting used to the fact that the stylists themselves could be the celebrity just as much as a celebrity client they were styling, or the editor at the magazine could be as publicly recognized as, you know, the editor in chief. And, you know, Facebook had already launched, Instagram would launch really shortly after Twitter was already launched. So it was this era of people becoming comfortable in in opening themselves up. So once we had a couple people signed on, I think the referrals that we got, people were eager or more open to participating in something like this. And honestly, I do really think it is because life was just so different back then. Like it felt new, it felt different. It it was, you know, us into the gloss, man repeller. Like at the time, all of those things had not existed and people yeah. responded to that. And I was seeing the behind the scenes too, because if you think about all the magazines and so on, everything is so polished and it's so the other side of the camera and and getting to see what actually, I think that coincides with the the realness movement with people wanting to see what goes on behind the camera and how things actually come together and not just the final Photoshopped image or whatever that they see. Yeah, our whole thing was, you know, we're not going to talk down to you and tell you what to buy and where to go. We're going to like take you with us into all of these experiences that we're having. So, you know, we're bringing you along as a friend, not as someone that we are just talking at. And I think that tone of voice made us feel more accessible to a lot of people. So you guys launch, you think you're going to have like five people, maybe most of whom are your parents logging on. Yes. You're pleasantly surprised that it's not at all that. But then all of a sudden you go from this like passion project in your living room to something that has massive potential. Where do you even begin the process of actually turning it into a business of, fi- of even just figuring out, okay, what are the next steps? What do we do now? We, you know, just kept on doing what we were doing. It really pushed us to just shoot as much content as possible. So I think we were doing to keep creating maybe one or two closets a week. Let's try and do three closets a week and let's rent a house in LA for a month and let's spend time there and get to know what that market looks like. And the focus for the first few months really was just on editorial and getting this amazing content up and doing what we do, and just trying to perfect it as we went. We had built the site with no advertising capabilities. We thought I don't think we ever thought anyone would want to advertise because it really wasn't built as a business. And also our mindset was it's a museum for images. It can't be cluttered by anything else. So when we had requests from brands to work with us, what we had to say was, no, we can't run your ads. Truly, our site doesn't have that capability, but we could create content around whatever messaging you're trying to get across for you. And that was really early custom content. So our first few, Mm -hmm. you know, coach was launching a bag and we took it around New York and styled it in signature cover to reform and then did an article about it on the site. And, you know, we had a similar partnership with Chanel where we went to Paris with them and we went behind the scenes in their atelier in the Massaro where they make their shoes into Coco Chanel's apartment. So it was really, you know, branded storytelling. Yeah. And Which for the for the brand, I would think is it's much better than just pure advertising. Yeah. It's and that's it, the next level of it. And that's our main, you know, revenue driver to this day. But it really depends. There are luxury brands that sit so high that they don't let people make custom content on their behalf. Or if we do mostly with 
you know, a big luxury house, it has to go through, you know, an intense round of approvals. But that model is still our main source of ad revenue. I mean, so much of entrepreneurship and really of life is just kind of figuring things out as you go, no matter how much you try to prepare. Are there some along the way, especially in those first years, some some really key had to learn that the hard way moments that stand out for you, whether it, I mean, yes. on a personal level or just straight up business? Oh, yeah. No, I was, it's still really not my strong point at all. But confrontation for me is just, it's my worst nightmare. It is like before this started, I was like a wet blanket, a doormat. My mom was like, what or how are you going to, you what's going on here? So you know, whether it was to clients or, you know, internally, you know, learning to really stand up for myself and say when I was uncomfortable with something or something didn't feel right. It took a few years to learn it. You know, we had a small round of investors come in and through trial and error, I feel like one of the biggest things I found was like my voice and the ability to say when I was uncomfortable with something or if something wasn't working for me. But that was, you know, really a huge struggle. And the other thing, and I still have this in me is like a real almost like naivete about that. Like, why would anyone screw you over? Like, that's insane. But it's true. And, you know, you also learn that in business, too. The flip side to that is it makes you less reactive. So things that I I would before be like, oh my God, this is a disaster. It's like, oh no, that's not compared to other things that you've seen or dealt with. So, you know, it does, I think, put a lot of things in perspective too. Yeah. And I guess that's really, so it's just a function learning those things about yourself. It's just a function of experience and doing it again and again, being put in those situations and building up the the confidence to say, actually, no, this is what I think. This is what I don't. This is what I'm comfortable with or not. Yeah. And that part of my personality, like now, if someone met me, I think they'd be surprised. I mean, I'm not confrontational truly in general, but I think they would be surprised to hear that I was not big into expressing opinions because I think people would say I'm pretty opinionated these days. But that's a great reminder and lesson for people because a lot of times we get so locked into this I am like this, I am not like that thing, even, I mean, late into life, and that everything is flexible. It's just a matter of dipping your toe in the water, being in that situation and giving it the chance. It's like everything. I used to say I'm not a morning person and I can't exercise. And now I'm up at 6.15 and work out five days a week. It's like you got to use that muscle, sort of whatever it is. On kind of on that note, many of us go through some kind of period or constant self-doubt or the, you know, so-called imposter syndrome stuff. When you were, you know, with two friends suddenly making this into the massive business that it is today, did you, do you remember having moments like that? So I have more moments now than I did at the beginning. I think at the beginning we were like, this is crazy. And we were like doing it as we went. And also it's like adrenaline and you're moving forward. And I think as the company grew and as there were more financial expectations and also we had more employees who were relying on us, that is when for me, I started to have like self-doubt and thinking like, can I do this? Was it all a fluke? What's going on? And I think just from, you know, being honest about those feelings with other people, it is more common than you think. Oh, for sure. And I do really, 
you know, believe that media also really perpetuates this because I think you see these big stories and companies of one person who started and scaled it and a company can only be successful if you have a billion dollars of revenue and you take over the world. And I think when you are constantly surrounded by those messages, it makes you doubt your own accomplishments. A hundred percent. And that's so much of actually what this podcast and, and what these conversations are all about is that I feel like so much of the time you'll see the profile in the magazine, the Forbes 40 under 40, the title, the bio, whatever it is, and that's it. And you just, yeah. you know, no, it, all the accomplishments and none of the, how the hell did that actually happen? Right. And how tough was it? And also, you know, who else do they have at the company? Do they have, you know, an executive who has scaled a business like theirs before? And I think sort of giving all of that information is important. I'm a big proponent on bringing in people that are smarter than me in certain areas and who know things that I don't know. And I that's what makes a great leader, I think, is knowing yeah. who else needs to be there in the room with you. Yeah. And I struggle with it. And I, you know, really lately have been thinking that, you know, especially women get put on these pedestals and these articles of they're going to scale a business and, you know, they get hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. And the second it doesn't go the exact way, they just get ripped down. And I think, you know, one person can't be expected to achieve all of that. You really have to set someone up for success. And that is having a ton of smart people in the room. That must have been a big learning curve too, is how to find, you know, what kind of people do we need and, and how to find them? We still go through that all the time. I mean, we have been incredibly lucky in the majority of our hiring. Our current team is next level. They're amazing. And our internal executive team is the strongest we have ever had. But that also comes from, you know, years of hiring and rehiring and interviewing and, you know, defining our culture, being able to look at our weak points. So, you know, that's a skill just as much as anything else. Yeah. How do you think, I mean, becoming a manager on so many different levels, I mean, increasingly so, leading teams, everything that has gone into growing the Covetour, how do you think that changed you? I mean, what do you think you learned? You were talking about the confrontation issue at the start. Are there things you kind of learned about yourself or that surprised you that you, you don't think you, oh, yeah. you didn't expect? The surprise is I'm not a good manager. Leader, maybe. <laughs> manager, absolutely not. No way. It is my could not be, it's not awful, but it's definitely not my strong point. Some people, and I see it within our company, are so inclined in that way to really manage people where I have, my ideas are a lot bigger and I have trouble focusing on extremely small details. Well, no, I have trouble focusing on middle details, teeny tiny ones I could really hone in on. But, you know, I also want to talk to everyone about a lot of things that also isn't work. So if I'm in the picture, I'm like, and what about those pants and where your hair color? Where did you, it's like, I'm not necessarily additive more as I can be distracting. So I try to have, you know, the heads of each department sort of relay information to me because it is definitely not my strong point. And that's okay. And that's also oh, yeah. a good thing to remember is that you're not supposed to be filling every role you know, wearing every hat. It is so freeing. Once I was like, oh, you, I just don't think are necessarily good at this one thing. Because then you can kind of like take the responsibility away and you can say, that's not for me. You know, other things are in that, but that is not one yeah, of them. And, and process of elimination is also, I think, an important thing, not only in finding what you want to do in life, but in figuring out your space 
you know, where you want to be in a particular thing. You know, obviously every aspect of it can't be one that you love. And there are, you know, I don't love like going over the like lease agreement for office, you know, for sure. I don't think that's necessarily when I woke up that day, the thing that really got me out of bed and you, you know, do it. But yeah. Does anybody love going over a lease agreement? I think real estate lawyers. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah, I guess. I suppose they must. <laughs> they must. I wonder what your take throughout all this, especially now that you are, you know, nine years, almost 10 into it, your take on the kind of coveted and elusive goal of our time, the the work-life balance. Yeah, it's so funny. That also has shifted since we started. So a decade ago, it was the badge of honor was to like work yourself to exhaustion. That's just how it was. You know, it was like who stayed up the latest, who worked the hardest, whose boss was the meanest. I think in, you know, fashion, finance, I think just in the world in general. But there's definitely been a huge shift, a much needed shift into, you know, maintaining balance. And for me, it really started about five years ago. I came down with mono, not from like, a wild night, just from being really run down, really tired, traveling too much, working too much. And I was out of the game for a really long time for like two months, I was ill, like I couldn't drive, I couldn't stand I was like, totally out of the game. And that was sort of the first clue that maybe things needed to to change. And I think also, as I got older, my priorities themselves change. And I also just didn't have the energy to like, go out and be hungover and go to work. And it became where like, if I was hungover during the week, it was so unenjoyable that, you know, it's not worth it. Yeah. You start to find joy in other things. Like now I love working out. I don't want to be, obviously there are late nights, but you know, a lot of what we cover on the site is wellness as well. And I think when we started the site, luxury was very much one thing. It was like, how much designer can you own? And now luxury is the infrared sauna and meditation and working out and thinking of luxury has changed. Having a work-life balance is a real luxury. And it's something we try and promote. I mean, I hope our employees would say the same. You know, if someone is coming to me and saying they're working till 11... 12 o'clock at night, to me, it's not okay. But I would also say like, it shouldn't be that way. Like, you have to look at the work you're doing and how you're doing it. Because that isn't the right way for this job. Yeah. And to be productive, ultimately. And I think I mean, your your case, your story about mono, I think happens so, so often, unfortunately, is that the only time we actually make a change, or confront the need to make a change, it's already to the point where your body just says, Hey, that's it. We're done. It's so funny. I was out. That that's what it takes to. I know. I was out with my friends and I, a couple nights before, and we were like out and drinking, and I wanted to share everyone. And everyone was like, We're not sharing anything with you. You're sick. I was like, I'm not sick, guys. What are you talking about? And then two days later, I was like, You should all get tested. I have mono. So, yeah. Smart friends. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes other people see it. It was Didi. Yeah. Didi was like, Oh, really? She's like, You might be sick. <laughs> so sometimes people see it before. Things you we don't want to face. Yeah. We're see until until yeah. we can't not face them. Exactly. So you made, I mean, you made a big move last year deciding to sell, but you've stayed on at the Covetour. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, how that came about and 
was it exciting? Was it scary to sort of, yeah. on one hand, you're staying on, but you're, you know, your baby is morphing into something else completely and, and letting other people in the door in a big way? I will tell you, it is all of, you know, the things that you would expect it to be. So, you know, when we had started Covetour, we initially did a small round of fundraising and we did, it was just under $500,000. And at the time I was like, um, we're millionaires. This is insane. <laughs> this is so much money. But hey, that's big. It is big. But honestly, to run a company our size and to be competitive with the who, what, wears and refineries and, sure. you know, Condé Nast, it was like, Nothing. Pocket change. Yeah. And we were at a point where media valuations had gone so down. People weren't really, it wasn't the thing that people wanted to really invest in anymore, or the deal itself would have been really not great for us. But we also needed money for the business. We were at the point where, you know, we really needed to up our infrastructure. We just needed things like better HR. We needed, just better infrastructure in general, the ability to hire more executives and the, you know, notion of what happens if instead of bringing, you know, partners in and building all of that infrastructure yourself, you partnered with someone who already had all of that built in infrastructure. And for us, that was a thing that made the most sense. So that's how we ended up at Great Bowery. We had spoken to a bunch of different companies and we really love their vision. We see a lot of, you know, ways that we could help them make their company more digital and help their artists, you know, with their social media platforms and, you know, lend our expertise there. And on the flip side, we have access to amazing talent. It's exactly our sweet spot, these behind the scenes, amazing creatives who push the industry. So you complement each other really well. Yeah, who push the industry forward. So it's been great. And honestly, we it was a relief to walk in the first day and be like, oh, you have an issue? Great. HR is down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly not everything is on your shoulders. Right. I can only imagine how heavy that is. Yeah. But I mean, it's bittersweet. Yeah. I mean, now that you are in this space and, and if you're to look back at these last nine years, what is it that you on a personal level, professional level want to be doing right now or going forward? What's your passion project right now, circa 2020? <laughs> it's so funny. I've I was just having this conversation this morning where I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, I think getting really creative and almost back to the roots of Covature has been something we've been focusing on. And that to me feels really exciting is almost, I call it back to the future, like looking back to go forward. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, doing those few things really well that we were known for. For a long time, we tried to be a lot of things to a lot of people, but you know, we're never going to be a refinery. We're not going to be that big. So let's just focus on the things that we do really well. And just trying to, you know, enjoy life and do things that make me feel good. I mean, we just got a puppy. I've been married for just over a year. In a fabulous wedding that if anyone's interested, they can go online and see some of the photos. <laughs> We're just beautiful. Thank you. You know, working out, just doing things, I think, taking advantage of the time that we have. It's so weird, mostly isolating and can definitely make people sad at least a few times a day, but trying to, you know, really use it as time to recharge and think about what the future looks like. 
Yeah. I think for me, what I what I feel like this period has been obviously setting aside, I mean, not for those who don't have a place to live or, or money to eat, because that has been the case for so many people in COVID. But, yes. you know, it's a luxury that not everyone has. But just the permission, just the permission to not have a fully booked anything, to not be completely, you know, around productivity or whatever it is all the time, and to have a little bit of, of literal and figurative quiet to, to try to see what that is. I think it is making, maybe inspiring a lot of people to, to rethink what it is they're doing and what it is they, they like in the first place. And, you know, and when it's just not filled up with so much noise. Exactly. You know, I find, okay, you're going out for dinner with someone like you're enjoying it because the weather is going to get cold and you know, you don't do it that much. And did you like it before when you were going out seven nights a week? Like just being able to really, you know, I think step back and look at everything and be okay with taking some things off of your plate, even when things develop their new normal things that, you know, maybe you used to do that. Now you realize you don't love that much actually being okay to not incorporate those things back in. Starting with a sort of a clean slate. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So on the clean slate, I'll let you go run your, run your big business. And take care of the new dog. Oh, thank you so much. This was so great. It's great to have you. It's great to talk to you. Um, I really admire everything you've done and that you've built and that journey that you've been on. I'm excited to see what's next and absolutely don't think it has to be right away and so clear. And every day we have something we're, you know, we're passionate about in a five-year plan. It's all an ebb and a flow. And I think you've proved that following something that you're passionate about and interested in can lead to absolutely incredible places. Oh, thank you. And that's very true. If you don't feel inspired every day, it's unreal. That's okay. It's not realistic. So (laughs) ride the wave. On that note, Stephanie Mark, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts. Any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And wait up, here's a peek at next week's episode. Alana Karen started working at Google back when no one had ever heard of that word. After 20 years in tech, her book Adventures of Women in Tech is packed with practical insight and no frills advice. You've got all these hangups where you think you don't belong or you're not awesome and you're going to be your own problem. Go work on those. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.